This is the Scott Radley Show podcast. And I'm Ted Michaels in for Scott Radley tonight. Interesting survey came out yesterday about the upcoming provincial election. Joining us uh, to talk about that poll is the guy who put it all together and crunched all the numbers. He's the president and founder of Forum Research. Lauren Bozanoff joins us. Lauren, first of all, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? Good. How are you, Ted? Excellent. So let's first of all start right off the top. The survey came out yesterday. You did it on the weekend. We'll talk about that in a sec. But the forum poll said right now half of Ontario voters, 49%, uh, said they would favor the progressive conservatives in the next provincial election. Were you surprised by that? Um, You know, I I think when we consider the caliber of candidates that are running in the leadership race, uh, they're all, uh, or most of them are are sort of well-known you know, brand name candidates, star candidates. I think that's that, that's given the Tories a boost. Now, the Liberals have the support of 24% of voters. The NDP have 19%. Uh, is this because of that, um, the term I think you used, is the accumulated baggage? It seems that the, the Liberals have been spinning their wheels in the last few months and last few years getting out of uh, different type of uh, situations? Yeah, you know, they're 14 years into this, and that's a really long time in this in this day and age, uh, in, in terms of being in power for, in politics. Uh, let's talk about the survey. It, it was conducted over the weekend, so we'll get into the whole Patrick Brown thing in a moment, but kind of uh, talk about uh, how you ended up doing this survey, which was done last weekend, I understand. Well, it was done actually last Friday night and Saturday, and um, so it was done right after uh, Patrick Brown announced that he was going to um, uh, join the race, and we really wanted to gauge um, the rea- you know people's reaction to that. Now, uh, Christine Elliott uh, was the most popular at 22%. Um, I, how much of what happened to Patrick Brown in the last little while uh, played a factor in Christine Elliott being right now the front runner? Well, he, in fact, was in uh, fourth place or, or sort of tied for fourth place at 13%. Yeah, Christine Elliott has a big lead there right now, 22%. It's even bigger when you look at just um, PC uh, voters. That, that's everyone. But among voters, she's actually at 26%. So she's on a bit of a roll. She's well-known. She's run before. Um, she has an excellent reputation, no real baggage, no, no, no real uh, image problems out there. Now, Doug Ford was in the studio a couple of weeks ago talking how uh, with the things that he could do for the party, what have you. Uh, he is at 16%. Do you sense any type of a groundswell of interest toward uh, uh, Doug Ford, or is that pretty much uh, that he will be number two in the race and maybe dropping substantially by the time we go to the polls? Well, he is number two, and he is number two <clears throat> among everyone at 16%, but also among PC voters. There he's at 21%. So... Both both he and um, and Christine Alley are the two two real front runners among the PC party um, supporters. Of course, it's the PC party members that will be deciding the leadership. Now, uh, Caroline Mulroney was third. I understand she is at fourteen percent. Um, I don't want to use the term a lightweight because we all know who her father is, of course. But uh, I, when you look at the people running, I. Caroline Mulroney, for some reason, doesn't appeal to me, and not that I would, uh, you know, be be a member of the Tory party, but uh, what's your sense and the feedback about her? Well, she has the name recognition, so she's getting a boost from that, but she's an unknown quantity beyond that, and she'll have to define herself uh, going forward. I should say, though, that she does uh, better than Doug Ford and Patrick Brown among women and, and more moderate voters, so 
she does sort of have her 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 fans out there. Somebody who, uh, when I watched the debate a couple of weeks ago on TV, oh, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised because nobody really knows who this person is. Tanya Gronick Allen, who is a, a self-described social conservative, uh, she has been very outspoken about things like Ontario sex ed curriculum. Five percent of voters picked her. Should she not win? And apparently, this this poll says that she won't. Is this a name that maybe people should be watching uh, as a dark horse in the next few years? Uh, moving forward in Ontario politics? Well, she, she's going to get a lot of coverage from this and a lot of awareness. So she, she, you know, it's a great platform for her. It's a great way, way of quickly building your awareness. And, um, you know, she has come across well in, in the debate, uh, even if you don't agree to her, her, her issue. But, um, so, yeah, this is a good, good, good step up for her. When you uh, did the poll last Friday, was it just basically one question of who would you vote for right now if the election were to be held? Like You, you didn't ask the people to get into the whole um, Patrick Brown situation, or did they just kind of add that uh, as they were surveyed? No, we actually did a couple of things. So first of all, we asked people, do you agree or disagree with Patrick Brown's decision to enter the race? found that the, the, the province is, is evenly divided, 38% agreed, 39% disagreed, so that's a lot of people out there disagreeing with this decision to get in. But then on top of that, we actually did what we call trial heats, where we asked people how they would vote if, you know, uh, Carol Mulroney was, was, uh, was the leader or Christine Elliott or, or Doug Ford or so forth. So we could see the impact of the leader on the potential uh, PC vote out there. Before we uh, take the break for for weather and traffic, uh, getting back to the whole Patrick Brown situation, I know it was a bit of a um, uh, a carnival atmosphere down at Queens Park today. All the stuff that's happened to Patrick Brown in the last little while has this hurt him? Well, a lot's happened, and just you know, we, we finished interviewing on Saturday, and a lot's happened since then, even mm-hmm. so, um, you know. It, it really depends on how this gets resolved. You know, some of it is an internal issue. I don't know how, how, how interested, you know, Ontarians are, but in, in terms of PC Ontario, uh, 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 internal issues in terms of these memberships and, and, and every, everything else. But other things are more substantive. He's still got those sexual allegations out there. To, I don't think he's resolved those. And there's some other things out there that the public might be concerned about. And that, that may chip away at his, uh, his, re- his reputation. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. When you break down the numbers even more, and we talk about the survey saying about 49% of the respondents say that they would vote for the PCs, when you extrapolate that, that means that uh, the this is a landslide, that the PCs would secure 93 seats, the NDP is the official opposition with 21, and the Liberals with just 10. To me, that is so surprising. Well, in Ontario, you need about 40% of the vote to get a majority. And, in fact, the Liberals did that with 39% of the vote in the last election. Um, once you get above uh, 42, 43, 44, uh, the seats really start tumbling your way, and um, that, that then gives the, the, the Tories a supermajority. You know, there were a lot of people who thought that the NDP with Andrea Horvath may um, uh, make a bit of a charge. They don't seem to be able to get out of, they they appear to be, if you will, stuck in neutral, that they can't make that final push. Do you think people uh, that, that you've talked to in the survey, are people scared of having another NDP government in this country, uh, this uh, province? Well, it's it's been a while now since the the Ray the Ray government, but um, I think they're waiting for the NDP to really differentiate themselves from the Liberals, 
you know, when, when the, the Liberals sort of stole the NDP's platform last time, and they're kind of doing it again. They went to the $14 minimum wage. The New Democrats are at $15, and Liberals are promising to do that next year. So there's not a lot of difference between the New Democrats and the Liberals on a lot of issues. Did the uh, minimum wage come up in the uh, survey when you talked to Ontarians at all? Well, we had, didn't ask about it. We right. have asked about it in the past, and, and the, the, the sort of the, the big mystery in all this is the sort of the big contradiction is the Liberal Party policies are extremely popular, whether it's the minimum wage and the pharmacare and, and, and the, the work they've done on the hydro rates and controlling those. All that is, is tremendously popular, but has not, been, has not translated to popularity for the actual Liberals. Could that be because people are just tired of Kathleen Wynne? Well, the Premier does have uh, very low approval ratings. They're in the mid-teens. That, that is, like, historically low. Um, but Dalton McGuinty also had, you know, fairly low. He wasn't this low, but he did have approval ratings in the, in the mid to low 20s. So it's not necessarily a barrier, but it's probably one of the factors. When is the uh, next, uh, because we go to the polls in June, uh, when can we keep our eyes and maybe have you back on the air? When is the uh, next uh, round of polling done prior to the election? We'll probably want to poll again when the Tories actually pick a leader. We'll want to look at the impact of that selection. And by then, the Tory race will have been over, and it will also pick up the impact of that race. Was the race, you know, well-organized and constructive and... Um, or was it divisive and, and, and so forth? All that will have an impact on how people feel about the Tory party. And then when we get to the election in June, uh, when will the, uh, I guess, the final one heading into that uh, election, when will that be uh, out? A couple of weeks prior to? Well, the final election poll is, is done like the day or two before. So we want to catch last-minute swings, and there can be quite a lot of swings in elections these days. So we'll be polling all during the election at the start of the campaign and, and and at regular intervals during the campaign very, right until two days before. Very interesting then. Uh, again, the forum poll said right now, among the 949 Ontario voters, 49% say they would support the PCs if an election were held today. That's an increase of eight points since uh, January 25th. The Liberals have 24%, the NDP uh, just uh 19%. So we'll have to wait and, and see what happens as we get ready to go to the polls and keep an eye on Queen's Park. Our guest, Lauren Bozanoff, the president and founder of Forum Research. Thank you for the update. We look forward to uh, talking with you again as we get closer to the election. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's uh, Lauren Bozanoff, as we mentioned. And boy, when you look... <laughs> The, the NDP, and Lauren kind of talked about it, that the Liberals, he used the term, they kind of stole what the NDP were doing, but... Uh, are people just that disillusioned with Kathleen Wynne? And he talks about very popular liberal uh, platform ideas, the liberal policy. Uh, a lot of people like that, but they just possibly, well, maybe it's more than possibly, maybe they just don't like the leader. Interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. And hopefully everybody will uh, go to the polls. And if there is uh, distrust and a dislike of the premier, fine. I hope people get out and vote and we get uh, a reasonable turnout uh, for that election in June. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer absolutely nailed it. And I thought to myself, let's talk about what goes on in uh, planning an event like this, planning a skate like this, how much work's involved, and kind of the legacy as well. Joining us uh, to talk about this for the next few minutes is he's a coach at the Hamilton Skating Club, and we're so proud. And when I mention the name, you may think, aha, I remember that name. Bryce Davidson, the Hamilton Skating Club Director of Skating Development, joins us. Bryce, first of all, thanks for joining us. How are you? 
I'm great, thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, let's first of all go back. Before we talk about the skate, when you were watching them last night, were you getting a little bit of an itch thinking, you know what, yeah, I've retired, but God, that looks like so much fun out there. <laughs> Honestly, uh, when it comes every four years or even at World Championships every year, I have that same feeling that I wonder if uh, I can still be kicking it out there with those guys. <laughs> now, physically, can you, though? That's the other question, right? Absolutely not. It takes um, way too much physical preparation. And just your body takes a beating, um, which with the state my body's in now, I, there's no way. Well, let's actually talk about the training that's involved in this. Uh, you know, people are, are amazed when they find out that uh, Scott and Tessa were uh, partner, skating partners for over 20 years. When you look at that four-minute skate that they did last night, how much work and preparation hours goes into planning a four-minute skate like that? Because obviously it's something that just doesn't happen overnight. No, definitely not. It, it's, I mean... Each year you have a, most of the time you go through a new, uh, new choreography and process of learning a new program. But in terms of the physical preparation for that, that four minutes, um, it's, it's a lifetime, a lifetime of commitment and dedication to being at the rink five or six days a week for hours a day. Um, just to hone the skill that much. And it's important that you get in at a young age because it is such a early acquisition uh, sport where you want to learn as much as you can before before you're smart enough to develop a, a fear for anything that you have to do. Well, let's actually talk about that because, um, as we say, they, they've been partners, skating partners for over 20 years. At what point last night do you think when you're watching this, the skate, did they um, – did it flash across their mind at some point, maybe early in the skate or halfway through, that I think we've nailed this, or is this the case where they skate and let the chips fall where they may? Um, it's it's a little it's a little bit of both. Um, after knowing Scott and Tessa since they were six and seven years old, um, the way they approach this entire uh, games, they had it nailed before they skated. It, it's just the result um, is kind of where they were letting it fall as the chips came out. They kind of, that's what they weren't in control of. So they were in control of their skate and they just went out and enjoyed every second they were on the ice. That special thing I, I saw when I was watching them. Now, when you uh, talk about the mental game, how much uh, it goes through that uh, from their standpoint of, you know, the physical work is done, and they've been doing that for years. But from a mental standpoint, talk about what's involved for them, knowing that they have to skate last, that the pressure is on, and they have to uh, deliver when uh, the chips are down. Right. Um, it's honestly at that point, when it comes time to competition, you can only control what you're doing. And I'm sure that's what they said to each other going out there. Let's just do our thing. Um, it's, it's such a huge moment to go out after the previous team had, I believe they uh, set a new world record yep. in the, in the free dance. So uh, the skating the way it is now you, with the numbers being so specific, um, you know what you have to beat. And most of the time you have a very good idea if you skate perfectly, what you're capable of. So it's just knowing that what you do 
isn't going to change based on someone else's number. And that's the strongest competitors understand that. Um, and at that time, it's not you can't change the plan. You have to stick to your own plan and go out and execute. Is that why uh, afterwards uh, Tessa said basically we skated for each other with our, our hearts? They basically said, you know what, we got this. Let the chips fall and let's just enjoy it. Is that kind of what she's saying in so many words? Um, that's also just because they've been doing this for such a long time and they still have such passion for the sport. For them, it's as much as results are important because they can win. Um, and, and they did, obviously, but it, it was more about their love of skating. And that's what all, all true figure skaters have that same sense of passion. And at the point when you've been doing it for 20 years together, it doesn't matter what other people think so much. It's more just go out and execute our plan and, and, and do what we love to do. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Bryce, I'm wondering now, uh, it's early, it's one day afterwards, but with all the excitement of uh, the, the figure skaters uh, with Scott and Tessa last night, do you get an influx at the Hamilton Skating Club from more parents or kids calling saying, you know what, not necessarily going to the Olympics, but I want to learn how to skate like them? Um, generally, we see a little bit of a, a peak around this time when there's so much interest in figure skating, um, and especially when we have such great ambassadors as we do in in our Olympic team that's in uh, Pyeongchang right now. Um, so that interest does kind of ripple through down through um, the kids that are around the four, five, six, seven age, or even a little bit older, but they're interested in learning a sport. And with the Olympic Games being on, they see how uh, impressive um, and physically challenging and just interesting figure skating is. If you take a figure skater, as you say, you uh, and I was laughing last night because it, it, I had the vision and the Canadian the figure uh, skater who was on the team, Piper, was, was talking about how she started skating at the age of two. And I thought that's really, really cool. But if you take a kid that's maybe six or seven or 10 or 11 uh kind of take us through the uh, program how many hours are involved for them because obviously if they want to get to the elite level the older you get the more training that you have to do right um i mean it's it, it's different for everybody really um we all have stories of the majority of figure skaters that reach an olympic level or even just an elite level um start at the age of around in between three and five, I was two and a half personally. Um, so there are some that start basically learn to walk and put on skates and they're, they're put on the ice. Most of those are the ones with older siblings um, <laughs> that are in the rink all the time. In terms of a six or seven-year-old or, or even up to a 10-year-old, it starts out slowly. Um, starts out with two, maybe three days a week of just one hour a day. Um, but then as things progress and they, they develop a love and a passion for the sport, and it does happen very quickly sometimes, um, then it turns into being a before school, after school, around two, two and a half hours a day on the ice, if not a little bit more at an elite level. Um, but it's all based on the, the development of the child. Um, some kids can handle going hard for eight hours a day and some can only handle an hour and a half or two at a time 
I'm wondering, uh, last night, uh, you know, you would talk about the uh, training that goes on. Uh, how much uh, strength training, weight training, what have you, is involved in something like this? Because, of course, one of the things we saw was when Scott Moyer at one point lifted up uh, Tessa Virtue over his head and she came down on, on the top of him and put her skates on, on his legs. That obviously requires an awful lot of strength. How much of that stuff is involved for them to get ready for a uh, big skate at the Olympics? Right. So it very, very much depends. Your off-ice uh, training regimen depends on what type of figure skating you're doing. Um, for the pairs and the ice dancers, there's obviously a, a lot of weightlifting involved, um, just in terms of physical strength and power. The male skater is required to have quite a lot, quite a bit more than than a singles or free skater. Um, in in the evolution of the sport in the past, um, we'll say six years, when people have started to really push the envelope on what technical tricks they're doing, um, there's a lot less heavy weightlifting, and it's all about being explosive and very very quick, um, as as well as the ballet dancing, the the stretching, the hip hop, the all the various genres of dancing so that you can skate to any music presented to you. And I would say, su- um, yeah, uh, sorry. And I would suggest that at the end of that four minute skate, there are, their heart rates are probably up to close to 200 beats a minute. Is that, uh, not off the charts? That, no, that's fairly accurate. Um, it depends on what each skater, um, most people would be up at the end around four minutes, at least around 175 to 180. Um, but in a situation like that in Olympic Games, I'm sure they'd be pushing 190 to 200, yes. Just before we uh, wrap up, and our guest is Bryce Davison, who is uh, a, a coach, uh, the HSE Director of Skating Development. This is the Hamilton Skating Club. This couple trained on a consistent basis. They skated since they were kids. They've, they've been partners uh, for over 20 years. And I know you can't answer th- this question, but but generally, what's next for them? Because that was their last Olympic skate. Unless they turn pro, how do you dissolve a 21-year partnership of training virtually every day? Um, uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, I can tell you that they'll definitely do shows. Um, Stars on Ice, which tours around Canada and the United States, and then there's also... There'll be many opportunities in um, Asia, the various countries uh, of mostly Korea and Japan. Um, but after that, uh, honestly, who knows? They they have the they'll they'll have to choose what their path is and whether they choose coaching or they leave skating. But I can tell you that they will forever be very strongly connected as people. Our guest, uh, Bryce Davison from the Hamilton Skating Club. Thank you for the insight into uh, what happened. It was an amazing journey, and uh, what a night last night. By the way, do you have some uh, skaters at the Hamilton Skating Club that maybe we should keep an eye on that they could be Olympic-bound in uh, four years? Uh, There might be, maybe not four years, but in the next eight, we're hoping that we see a couple of uh, figure skaters qualify for at least the chance to make it to the Olympics. So uh, we should be seeing them come up the ranks in the next four years it's just whether or not they're old enough to actually qualify that um we're working with right now that that is um 
a fascinating look at what is involved in uh, figure skating, in uh, what Scott Moyer and uh, Tessa Virtue did. And boy, Twitter continues to blow up. And I've people continue to watch the performance online of what they did last night. Just absolutely incredible. And a little look at how much hard work is involved in that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Families for Addiction Recovery, or FAR, is a grassroots Canadian-registered charity dedicated to supporting families and protecting persons, particularly teens and young adults struggling with a substance use disorder. And funding is always an issue, and there's a lot of things that they want done that haven't been yet. So we're so pleased to be joined on the air by the Executive Director of Families for Addiction Recovery. Angie Hamilton joins us. Angie, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's uh, first of all talk a little bit about uh, FAR and kind of um, encapsulate a little bit more of exactly what it is that your group does. Okay. Well, actually, you gave a very good over- overview yourself. Um, we like to support families who are affected by addiction, and uh, one of the things we do is we have a parent-to-parent support program that's available over the phone. Um, and we have trained uh, parents who have lived experience as a parent of a child with substance use disorder or addiction. Uh, and uh, we provide help to any Canadian parent across Canada, as I said, over the phone for a period of time. Um, and the other thing that we have is an excellent website, which uh, is very resource-rich um, and has tips for parents and other loved ones on how to uh, communicate and interact with your loved one who may be in active addiction and, you know, um, talks about what you can do to support yourself and has a lot of good information about what addiction is and is not. Um, Other things that we do, we uh, advocate uh, to the governments, uh, to medical associations, and uh, and the general public, really, and say what we think needs to happen in order to help uh, people struggling with addiction and their families. Now, one of the things that I've noticed and uh, known uh, for the last little while uh, hosting uh, mental health shows and health and wellness shows here on CHML is it seems that a lot of people or most people get involved in a cause because of a personal story or they're very passionate about something. And I know that uh, there is something uh, that tugs with you uh, on a personal tie-in with addiction and a family member, correct? Absolutely. Well, that's one of the reasons that uh, FAR was founded. Um, so uh, we, as many of the uh, people involved in the creation of FAR, we have uh, a child who has struggled with addiction from a very early age, actually from the age of 14. Uh, and it's what we went through in order to help our son uh, that convinced us we really needed uh, an organization like FAR because the needs of our families were not being met. So I'm happy to report right now that uh, my son is 23 years old and he's actually today two and a half years in recovery. Excellent. Uh, when you were, uh, when he started at uh, 14, um, were the warning signs there or did something just kind of jump out at you to say, you know what, he has a problem? Or, or did he come to you and say, at some point, I've got a problem? Oh, no. He, <laughs> he did not come and tell us he had yep. a problem. Um, so I would say my experience, and I, I've attended a lot of support groups, is uh, the kids 
almost always, if, if they have a substance use disorder at an early age, there's something else going on. So they often have other uh, mental health conditions uh, or they could have incurred trauma. Uh, in my son's case, there were other mental health conditions, so he had undiagnosed uh, anxiety, depression, and ADHD, and he was quite oppositional. Um, so we knew, you know, that, that he had those, those issues going on. We didn't know, you know, that it was clinical, um, but we, we were aware. And, uh, you know, like a lot of the families struggling, their, their kids... Um, you know, have behaviors that are problematic that's, that's the result of other mental health conditions and then with the substance use. And in our case, we did know uh, that he started to use substances pretty much right away. And, and then uh, what, what we found, and which was really annoying, is that we were quite powerless uh, to do anything about it. Um, you know, because initially, you know, kids, they're, they're kids, uh, they often think when they uh, try a substance and it's fun or it, you know, alleviates pain uh, and, and helps them deal with other mental health conditions, they're kind of self-medicating. They think they've found the answer to their problems. And it's not until often many years later that they realize what they thought was the answer may have become the biggest problem for them. In your um, experience, um, is, is teen, preteen, adolescents, what have you, whatever age group, um, is anxiety and depression and things like that a bigger issue for kids these days than maybe when you were growing up and I'm a lot older than you, so uh, it just seems more prevalent these days. Is that a fair statement? I actually don't know the answer to that. I think it's very prevalent. Um, whether it's more prevalent than before, I'm not sure. I think what there is is easier access to drugs today than there were. Uh, in the olden days or the good old days or whatever, which which makes it uh, much more problematic. Now, one of the things that I know that uh, you have been proactive about, uh, Pine River Institute is Ontario's only long-term residential treatment program for kids 13 to 19. And I think people may be surprised by that when we say it's the only one in the province. And uh, the wait list is 12 months for girls, 15 months for boys. I guess uh, the obvious question is why? Why is the wait time so long? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, the, the provincial government has acknowledged that youth addictions is an area where there's a, a service gap, and they have said it's a priority area for them. Uh, and notwithstanding that, Pine River has had their expansion plan for an extra 26 beds and eight transition beds in with their, uh, you know, LIN, their uh, local health integration network, since 2014. Um, and it, it's never gotten a stamp of approval. And for families, you know, we certainly have an impression, you know, money is going to harm reduction, uh, which is very important, keeps people alive. But we're certainly feeling and have the impression that the government right now has a policy of anything but beds. Uh, because they're perceived to be very expensive compared to everything else. But the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, if you don't fund the beds, uh, these kids are expensive one way or the other. So it could be that they end up, uh, you know, in children's aid societies. They rotate through, you know, the emergency rooms, and certainly they're involved. You know, if you're 13, 14, 15, and you're struggling with addiction, 
you often are involved in criminal activities in order to support your addiction. It's not because their their morals and values are any different than anybody else's, but if you look at the definition of addiction, it's, you know, compulsive use of, of drugs or alcohol in spite of, you know, adverse consequences. Uh, so, you know, punishment isn't going to, isn't going to work to, to stop that. And uh, it's interesting, and maybe it gives people an indication of, of how problematic this is. Uh, families, I understand, uh, when there there's 33 beds at Pine River, 29 are provincially funded, so families have to pay $650 a month. So it would... Uh, if, if you're one of those four families that has to pay money, whereas the other 29 don't, uh, how fair or unfair is that? Rhetorical question, well, obviously. Exactly. And so, I mean, and, and, and that's the case. I mean, we, we have a lot of parents, and myself included, we ended up taking our children to the states for treatment. So often people with, uh, you know, uh, with the financial um, ability will uh, either jump the queue in Canada for treatment um, or go to the states for treatment and you know when when a child is in we we have teenagers using illicit substances and the market today is toxic and the federal government is not regulating that toxic market so the next use by these teenagers could be fatal um, so for heaven's sakes when they need treatment we really need treatment on demand and we need it for everybody I understand that you did have a meeting with Premier Kathleen Wynne. Uh, fair to say that it wasn't quite uh, um, as substantive as maybe you would have liked? Well, you know, you never know. Uh-huh. You never know until something does or doesn't happen. Right now, nothing's happened yet. Uh, so we continue to be hopeful. Um, we, you know, we did tell the Premier, uh, and I think she knows, uh, that, that we need treatment beds for youth on, on an urgent basis. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Ministry of Health's own a leadership council, which they set up, has, has told them as much, that this is an urgent, urgent need. So, uh, you know, the other thing that we talked about um, was uh, uh, the need to put alcohol uh, medication. So there is medication available for alcohol use disorder. We need to put that on the formulary so it's free for people. Um, we have that right now with respect to the meds for opioids. Uh, they, they sort of expedited that, but they haven't done that yet with respect to alcohol. And the other thing that we really need is we need universal health care when it comes to mental health and addiction. We really don't have that. Um, so there's a chronic underfunding. CAMH has estimated it's about $1.5 billion annually in uh, Ontario that there's a shortfall. Um, so uh, addictions and mental health represents about 10 to 11 percent of the bur- burden of diseases, but it receives about 7 percent of the health care funding. So, you know, we need a major investment in this. And the other thing we need to do is educate our doctors as well, because it sounds crazy, uh, but um, the doctors don't learn, actually, about addiction in medical school. Uh, there's very, very little education. So we really need to bring them up to speed because they know how to prescribe opioids and, of course, may have overprescribed opioids, but most of them do not know how to prescribe the medications to, for people who have opioid use disorder to get them um, off of, uh, off of the, the opioids. 
Our guest is the executive director of Families for Addiction and Recovery, Angie Hamilton. I, you know, when you break down those, those numbers, Angie, that's staggering. When you say that CAMH says 1.5 billion, uh, that's the deficit when it comes to adequate funding. That's only seven percent of health dollars going to mental health. And all this time, I thought we were making progress, and clearly, um, in many ways, we're not. Very frustrating, I know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit uh, about um, what is up and coming, and that is the um, cannabis sales that the government is regulating, and it'll be out. And it's it's it, boy, that's uh, that's the uh, in my opinion the major elephant in the room. What would Far like to see as far as cannabis sales and services and and dealing with an issue that can be for a lot of people very problematic. Well, so it, it may surprise you uh, to, to find out that we actually are in favor of um, the government regulating cannabis sales. Um, we think it's the right way to go, not only with respect to cannabis, but perhaps other substances as well, because people use illicit substances, and the only way to protect them is to control um, and regulate uh, the sale of those substances. And as long as it's illegal, they can't do that. Uh, that said... Um, it, we are very concerned because, because right now we don't, it, it, like, the kids are waiting so long for treatment, and I can tell you that the main thing that they're addicted to is cannabis. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not as bad, certainly, as being addicted to heroin. You don't have to usually worry if somebody's addicted to cannabis that they're going to die from it. Uh, but it can represent life years lost um, because the kids, you know, their, their life is basically stagnant. So we would like to see, and we asked for all of the um, profits from cannabis sales to go to treatment um, to help deal with this huge deficit in funding for addiction and mental health. So we would like to see that. Uh, one of the other things we would have liked to see, because we believe it's an evidence-based uh, policy, is for sales to be restricted to those 21 and over. Um, there's lots of evidence uh, that that uh, is good to prevent um, a, a lot of harms that, that come uh, with, with uh, using um, alcohol, cigarettes, cannabis, etc. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Angie, in the remaining moments, I uh, I did want to ask you, uh, there is apparently a day-long summit coming up uh, in May to talk about um, some issues going forward. Uh, tell us about that. I'm really excited about that, actually. Um, the summit is being held by MP Rob Oliphant. Uh, we asked him to do something, and he's doing a summit. Uh, on uh, how to protect addicted youth who are not seeking treatment because uh, there are actually it's kind of like the rule of thumb honestly that uh, a lot of kids who are struggling with addiction they aren't seeking treatment and there are different reasons for that uh, and we don't think it's really acceptable to sort of say, well, uh, you know, they don't want treatment. Um, we have to wait for them to hit rock bottom until and, and there's nothing we can do until they want treatment. So we're very excited uh, that we're having this summit and we're going to be getting uh, stakeholders uh, from across Canada uh, to, to uh, look at this issue and hopefully come up with an action plan uh, for the uh, federal government with respect to this very important issue. And where will that summit be held? 
it's going to be in Toronto. Okay. So just before we wrap up, Angie, I, if there's people listening to this and there's parents or family members and there is uh, somebody out there who is struggling, a young adult or a teen with substance use disorder, and you've talked about your personal story, you've gone through it, what's the advice you would have for them? Uh, for, for the families and, and for the people struggling, never give up. Um, the recovery is absolutely possible. It's, it's actually more likely that people recover than not. Um, and there is hope. And uh, they can um, go to our website, www.farcanada.org, for more information. All right. Uh, repeat that website one more time, just uh, in case sure. people wanted to, to reach for a pen. <laughs> sure. www.farcanada.org. Angie Hamilton, the Executive Director of Families for Addiction Recovery. I know that you've taken your battle to Queen's Park. I know it will continue for the uh, next foreseeable future as you continue uh, this uh, battle for funding and, at the same time, awareness. Thank you for the time. Continued good luck and congratulations on what you've done so far. Thanks so much, Ted. Appreciate it. Angie Hamilton from FAR. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Well, uh, that voice is unmistakable. He has been called the man of more than... uh, a thousand voices, but specifically his voice is now helping. Well, I wouldn't want to say help, but he is uh, on stage, the latest member of the band, the Hall of Fame band, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, Chicago. He's from Toronto, and we have to find out his story. And we're so proud and happy to talk to Neil Donnell. Neil, how are you? I'm good, Ted. How are you doing? Excellent. So first things first, let's go back. Because I remember it was about a year, year and a half ago, and I saw you in concert. Uh, well, I, it was Chicago and Earth, Wind and & Fire, that dynamite show that they put on at the Budweiser stage in Toronto. And then they did it in Hamilton at the First Ontario Centre. And you came on stage and you sang that song, You're the Inspiration. I thought, how cool was that? First things first, how did that happen that you ended up singing that particular song on stage with those guys? Well, I've had a relationship with the band for, I guess, about two years now. Uh, they kind of found me uh, on some stuff on YouTube uh, back when, two years ago when they were considering making a change in the lineup. And um, things didn't uh, progress beyond uh, my sort of hanging out with them for a while and spending a little bit uh, of time in a rehearsal space in Ohio. Uh, but uh, I maintained a relationship with them, so every time they were sort of around and I was nearby, they would invite me up to uh, to do a tune. And um, they, they liked the way I, I approached some of these big ballads that they had, so that was the one that they would choose. Now, from that, uh, they had a couple of lineup changes announced in the early part of this year. And when I saw the release, I kind of blinked twice. I thought, oh, my God, that's that's the same Neil I know. Uh, the changes were made. Uh, was it, uh, is it fair to say that the conversations and the negotiations when they offered you the gig were pretty short? Uh, I guess fairly short. I guess yep. a relative term. But you know, it was quite complex, as you can well imagine. Yep. An organization of that size has been around that long, has a lot of moving parts. And my being from, you know, another country, even, and uh, uh, there was just a lot of extenuating circumstances that uh, the first time around it didn't, it didn't, uh, it didn't take. 
Now, you, as we mentioned, uh, you've been introduced as a man of a thousand voices. You have done uh, recording sessions. You've done a lot of Juno work. You've done a lot of commercials. Tell us your history, because I know that you're from Toronto, and you uh, still, when you get a chance, teach vocal uh, music, correct? Yes, I, I give uh, I give master classes once in a while when I'm around, uh, which is uh, maybe a couple of times a year I have the opportunity to do that. But um, I came from a family that there was actually no music in the family, nobody in the entertainment business. So I'm a I'm a bit of a uh, a curiosity, <laughs> I guess, to to some of the family members because it's very foreign to them. And uh, but it was a singular thread that ran through my entire life. You know, I took it upon myself to, to join school choirs when I was younger, which, once again, was, was foreign to my parents. It was something that they didn't didn't quite understand. And uh, when I was in high school, I got involved with a couple of, you know, rock bands there, uh, and the second one of which was playing Chicago music as well as anything that had, had horns in it we would do. So even when I was in university, I was working with a local band there and started doing session work in my, my late teens, and then uh, I'm originally from Montreal. I returned to Montreal when I got out of university and did some session work there and ended up in Toronto around 1983, I believe, and got involved um, with doing session work there. I've, I've actually logged now more than 10,000 recording sessions in my career. Did you take uh, music uh, vocal lessons as well, uh, or were you in, like a lot of people, basically self-taught? For the most part, I was self-taught. Yeah, I sort of learned by trial and error. Wow! I sometimes tell people it's it's remarkable that I can talk a little alone sing, <laughs> given what I yeah, given what I put my vocal cords through in the last forty some years. But um, I've developed good technique, and I'm a stickler for staying staying healthy and fit, and uh, that's all uh, uh, an extremely important part of being able to do this consistently, especially when you're out on tour uh, with as many dates as Chicago does every year. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about that because uh, I tell the story. Of course, I people that know me and listeners to the station know that I've been a fan of theirs. All well, probably close to fifty years, maybe not from day one. And I did a benefit with them here in Hamilton about six years ago, and I was absolutely awestruck when I uh, introduced myself to every member of the band as they came in the hall. And Jimmy Panko, here's my idol, and I'm talking to him. Um, then I find out that basically they're like the rest of us. They're all, you know, I don't want to call them a bunch of goofs, but they're all a bunch of, you know, fun-loving guys. What was it like the first time when you were in a rehearsal, you look to your right, there's Jimmy Panko, and there's Keith Howland, and then you look to your left, and there's the original member, Lee Lochnane, and then there's Robert Lamb on the uh, keyboards. Singing on stage is one thing, but when you're doing rehearsals to go on tour, what was that like for you? Well, you know, you have to sort of uh, sort of calm things down. You know, you have to you have to tamp things down a little bit, and because you still have a job to do. But you're absolutely right. You know, I've I've got to tell you and all your listeners that these are real people and real guys, and they are some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, the principals, as we call them, Lee and Jimmy and Robert, are just. I mean, they've been around for, for a long time, and, and this has been their life and their career, and they've created this incredible body of work. But they're just the nicest people I've ever met. I mean, Robert is just the epitome of elegance on stage, and he's kind and considerate, and, and Lee is just one of the sweetest people I've ever met, and Jimmy is just, 
Jimmy's a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal human being, and just what he puts out every night on stage just is mind blowing. He is he plays like a lot of guys in their twenties wish they would play at the age of seventy. Right, he's he's astonishing. What's it? Um What's it like now? Uh, because I know that uh, Chicago is now when they're uh, doing the tour, they are playing, and uh, boy, uh, how how prophetic is this? They're playing their entire my favorite Chicago album is two. So they're doing they're doing in the country and they're doing moving in and they're doing fancy colors and 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 all that stuff. What was it like rehearsing that particular album? Because what I understand is the ballet for a girl in Buchanan is not the easiest song to play. No, this is a real, you know, to me, this is uh, akin to sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, the Chicago version of Sgt. Pepper, if you can make that kind of an analogy. Uh, this is an incredible body of work, and doing this every night with them is just, I mean, I, you know, my face hurts from smiling by the end of the first set. You know, it's just it's just absolutely wonderful. And the guys, it, it sounds like the record. It's just, it's that good, you know, from, from top to bottom. I was told by Jimmy Panko that uh, the band still has chops and the guys can still perform. From a musician's uh, standpoint and playing standpoint, what's it like being surrounded by some really incredible musicians? It's it's absolutely fantastic. You're right. I mean, the guys have got an incredible amount of experience, and they've played with so many famous people over the years. Um, and, and they just, you know, they take great pride in what they do. You know, I hear them rehearsing and warming up all the time and just, you know, these songs mean so much to so many people. You know, it's, it's really uh, a sacred trust to perform them every night. And the guys have such pride, you know, in this body of work that they've created that, that they do their utmost to to reproduce this every night, you know, in a very special way. You are uh, in the midst of a tour um, of Chicago playing Vegas here, playing, from what I've seen, the pictures of beautiful facility, a beautiful theater at a casino in uh, on the Strip in Vegas. Talk about that and how the response has been, because in many ways this is the first public viewing, so to speak, of you as a member of the group. That's right. This is my first uh, first little tour with the band. We've we've uh, this is in our third week of residency at the uh, at the Venetian Casino, and that theater is absolutely drop dead gorgeous. I mean, I've been in a lot of theaters all over North America, and that's one of the most stunningly beautiful theaters I've ever been in. And acoustically, it's just uh, it's just fantastic. I mean, for everybody, us on stage and for the audience, and. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. You know, we've also done uh, uh, a couple of runouts to shows. We're in Santa Barbara on a Sunday night a couple weeks ago, and we were in Thousand Oaks uh, on Sunday night. And the audiences are just uh, they're full houses, of course. I mean, the band is still drawing uh, great crowds, and the people are on their feet towards. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's fantastic. I I can't say enough about it. It's just. It's thrilling and exciting every single night. You know, you would talk about Chicago. Uh, by the way, our guest is Neil Donnell, the latest member of Chicago from Montreal originally, now lives in Toronto, and, and he's now a member of, of this group. You talk about their tour, and I I remember the conversations that I had with the, as you call the, the originals. Um, when they first started, they did uh, what I call a stupid amount of one-nighters. They did 250 or maybe 300 or maybe more one-nighters when they started and they're still doing a lot um 
physically you talk about taking care of yourself, but um, just just talk about what's involved for you because, yes, you're in Vegas for a three-week stint and you talked about going out to, to other towns, but then it starts getting into the meat of the tour in the spring and the summer. Um, you ever sit back and think to yourself, how did these guys do it and last for 50 years playing all those shows year after year after uh, year? Absolutely. It, it's remarkable. You know, the kind of stamina that you need to do this, you know, with uh, consistently uh, with those that amount of tour dates is really, uh, it's, it's really phenomenal, you know. So, um, you know, not very many people can actually do it. Uh, that's, that's, that's really the truth of the matter. But, uh, you know, Jimmy and, and Robert and, and, uh, and Lee are still, you know, they're, they're, I think the reason that they're, they're been able to do it is because this is such an important part of who they are. And they still love it. I mean, you can, the joy uh, is palpable every single night. The excitement off stage when we're about ready to be introduced and go on, you know, we're bumping fists and everybody's just pumped, you know, and, and, you know, I had one of the, my best moments the other night walking off stage with Robert. You know, at the end of uh, at the end of the show, the two and a half hour show, and we we just felt this great camaraderie. And he put his arm around me, and I put my arm around him, and we walked off the stage together, and just elated. You know, at at uh, how great the music sounds and how how wonderful the audiences are. One of the very important parts of Chicago's longevity is the fans. They're very active on social media. They are very active when they do the meet and greets and what have you. Talk about the fans and what it's like for you as the quote-unquote the newbie in the band to meet these people who are very passionate, rightfully so, about their idols. Well, you're right. And once again, it's, it's about the music for me. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's about the music for the, for the fans as well. And for most of them, it is. You know, change is difficult for some people, and they had just gotten settled in with some changes that had happened, you know, not that long ago, and, and now that's some little bit more change. But, you know, uh, the idea is that every change that comes around makes sure that the music is well represented. And, you know, I, I, I truly believe that the music sounds great, and I've had, you know, emails and messages from, from fans from all over the world. And they've been very welcoming and very warm and very receptive. And, and receptive, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. So, yeah, the, the Chicago fans are absolutely wonderful people. And much like myself, I'm sure that they can all uh, kind of say, look, this band has been a part of my life. And I, every single that has come out, uh, I, I visualize what radio station I was working at or what I was going through in my life. Uh, this truly is over 50 years. It, it encapsulates people's lives. And I'm sure when you're on stage and you look out, you see the looks on people's faces when they're playing, for example, the song I played off the top, You're the Inspiration. I'm sure that there are people there that are crying when they hear you sing this song. You took the words right out of my mouth. You can see people crying in the audience. You see people, you hear them singing along. You hear them gasping, you know, when they hear the song starting. And, and you know, uh, it, it's, it's absolutely magical. I mean, I've got goosebumps talking about it right now. Uh, Neil, um, congratulations on a great debut. Uh, I look forward to meeting you finally and uh, saying hi to all the guys. August 8th at the Budweiser stage, it's kind of a homecoming for you, so you'll, you'll probably be being asked for tickets. Look forward to, to uh, meeting you and, and saying hi to the guys when you're on stage that night. You're playing with REO Speedwagon. Uh, 
congratulations. This is a, such a great story. And again, it shows, I guess, right? Never burn bridges, right place, right time, and your body of work speaks for itself. So congratulations and look forward to uh, much more from you and the band down the road. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Neil Donnell, the latest member of Chicago. There you have it. A guy from Montreal, Toronto. He has done over 10,000 recording sessions. And uh, when you see him stand on stage there and sing and you close your eyes, it's like, you know what? Ain't much difference. There really isn't. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.